rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to another episode. Today on Rumors of Grace, we have Dr. Kristen Dumay. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I read Kristen's book, Jesus and John Wayne, about a month ago, and I not only listened to read it, but also listened to it on audio, as I have a tendency to do, going on my walks, riding back and forth to the office, etc. And it was an interesting experience because as you're going to learn, before I read her bio, Dr. Dumay is a historian. So the academic approach to the history of what we're going to talk about, I really, really appreciated. But for me personally, and many of my listeners that I know, she talks about the history of the era that I was brought up in. She unpacks what the Christian evangelical subculture was and is to this day, how it evolved from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. That's what I was brought up in. And in that context, there were so many things that were familiar to me that I lived through. It was part of my culture. As I know, Dr. Dumay was part of her culture as well. And so today we're going to unpack that. And I think you're going to find this very interesting. So before we begin, Dr. Kristen Dumay is Professor of History and Gender Studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She's written for the Washington Post, NBC News, Religion News Service, Christianity Today, and the Daily Beast, and has been interviewed on NPR, CBS, BBC, among other outlets. Her most recent book, which we're going to talk about, is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you're a professor at Calvin University, used to be Calvin College in Michigan, correct? Yes. And is that where, where we're talking to each other from today? Yes, I, I live just down the road from Calvin. So it's my day out of the classroom. And yeah, I'm still still a faculty member there. That's great. Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for writing the book. I appreciate it. What I appreciate most, as I mentioned in the introduction here, I appreciate your scholarly approach. Congratulations on the book. I know it's doing well. I know you're getting interviewed all over the place, being featured in major outlets, so congratulations. Thank you. What I do appreciate and, and what I want us to dive into today is the scholarly approach. You look at this factually, you're careful to document and, and cite everything that you write. And so it, it's really a history book, but it's also very disturbing at times where we've arrived in this country, how fractured we are, and where people are on, on all of this over the spectrum. So was this was this book, first of all, the first question is, was this book written as a result of that? Or was this something you've been thinking about for a long time as a historian? 
Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a very long time. I actually started the research on this topic more than 15 years ago. I was a new professor at Calvin and I, it was actually my students that brought the topic to my attention. I was giving a lecture in my U.S. history course on Teddy Roosevelt, actually, and I wanted to introduce my my Calvin students to the concept of gender in history and how ideas of masculinity in this case in particular change over time and they're connected to foreign policy and to race and to religion and all sorts of things. And, and so after that lecture, a couple of students came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there is this book that you have to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And so this is back in 2005, 2006, I went to a family Christian bookstore, picked up a copy and opened it up. And sure enough, there was a quote from Teddy Roosevelt right up front. And, and Eldridge went on to sketch a very militant and militaristic conception of what he called you know, Christian manhood. And this is right during the early years of the Iraq war. And, and I was seeing all the survey data that demonstrated how white evangelicals were outliers in terms of support for that war, for preemptive war in general, for torture and aggressive foreign policy. And so I just asked, you know, what does one thing have to do with another? And that's where I started to explore connections between masculinity and militarism and white evangelicalism. I ended up setting the project aside for a time for a variety of reasons, but it was in the fall of 2016 that I dusted off that old research and decided to, to pick it back up again and, and turned it into this book. Wow. Great timing. I think from 16 to 2020, you had plenty of encouragement to continue yeah. <laughs> on your path. <laughs> a lot of inspiration day to day. Yes. <laughs> yes. Inspiration is probably the, the best word. <laughs> Before we go any further, I want to just be really, really clear because it's important to those people, I think, who may be listening to this podcast or who may have gotten it from someone who's passed it along to them is that you teach at a Christian college. Mm -hmm. You yourself are, are consider yourself a Christian. Yeah. And so the, what we're going to talk about and the difficult things we're going to talk about, the controversial things we're, we're going to talk about, is not coming from a place of, I want to destroy something. I'm an atheist. I've been hurt, so therefore I want to take this down. I, I, I What I hear from you, both in your books and other interviews that I've heard of you, heard from you is not only a concern, but a desire to change and be better. Am I representing you correctly? Because I don't want to speak for you. No, that's, that's true. I'm, you know, I'm a practicing Christian. I'm an active member of a local church here, a Christian reformed congregation. I, I, I do teach at Calvin and I consider my work to be uh, fully aligned with our mission, which is to be Christ's agents of renewal in the world. And, and so that really is the impetus behind this project. And, and, you know, honestly, when I first, one of the reasons that I set this research aside very early on long ago was because what I was encountering, I found deeply disturbing and on the one hand, I wasn't sure that I wanted to, to live with this research for the years I knew it would take to write this book. But I also wasn't sure as a Christian if this was the best thing to be doing, right? I wasn't sure if um, shining a bright light on what seemed to be the darkest underbelly of American Christianity was what mm. I ought to be doing as a Christian scholar. And, and, and so that was one of the reasons I set it aside. And honestly, I although it seemed noble at the time, I, I, I regret that decision. I think that a lot of Christians have that impulse 
to kind of protect Christianity, to protect the brand, to, to, to not kind of own up to the darker sides of our own traditions, our own practices. And so this book reflects a kind of unflinching look at, at white evangelicalism and not just kind of showing the, the best sides to the world, but being honest with ourselves about what this tradition has been and in what it has accomplished in this country. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. And and I have you how's the, how has the book been received before we go into the book? How has it been received? I, I know and I've seen just reviews from, you know, mainstream press and BBC and NPR and NBC, but from the Christian world, how how has it been received? Yeah, so the the book released last June, and it did get a lot of national and, and a, a lot of international coverage to national media in, in Brazil and Japan and China and Australia and the UK. And so it's it's really been getting out there. And what a surprise me and my publisher, I think it's fair to say, is how popular the book is with white evangelicals themselves, including with many, many conservative white evangelicals. You know, I wasn't sure when I when I released this book into the world, the entire book had been vetted by um, my publisher's lawyer, you know, every single sentence. And when when we wrapped that up, she she warned me to prepare for vicious trolling and to kind of lock things down. And so when the book released, I was, I didn't know what to expect within, I'd say three days of its release. You know, we, we got this nice launch on, on NPR's morning edition. And within three days, I started getting letters um, from evangelicals themselves saying, thank you. Thank you for this. Mm. Uh, first thing, this is the story of my life. Almost all of them. And then they, they, they spell it out paragraph after paragraph. I attended this conference. I get pictures of people's bookshelves. You know, see, I have all the books you're talking about. And then poignant stories of, of what, what it was like to live in this world. And then, and then yes, gratitude saying thank you, because I never understood how all of these pieces fit together. And honestly, I mean, I've gotten probably well over a thousand messages from evangelical readers so far. I get several every single day. And and it's really evangelicals who have been promoting the book, spreading the book through their networks. It's you know a topic of a lot of adult Sunday school conversations, pastors conferences. And honestly, that gives me a lot of hope. It's been received with such humility in those circles. That's good to hear. So so more positive than negative overall. Definitely. And there's some negative, there's some pushback, uh, but uh, I'd say in terms of what I receive, probably a hundred to one positive. That's, that's wonderful. It's good to hear. Well, let's dive in just to set a a foundation for the, the content and the subject of a book. If I could boil it down in just a couple sentences, obviously your tagline, your subtitle is how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. But really I walked away with kind of two things is how did militant masculinity, militant Christian masculinity evolve? And how did Christianity get mixed with conservatism in a cultural and political sense? And I think you do such a wonderful job of that. So let's kind of start with there. How, where, where was the origin of this? Because you lay out in your book that Prior to, say, the 40s and the 50s in America, and much of this had to do with the wars that we were entering and other, and other things, there seemed to be a shift in what people believed, people of faith, specifically Christians, starting, say, in the 40s, 50s with 
potentially some large evangelists, Billy Sunday, then Billy Graham. Lead us down that road a little bit and kind of give us a timeline as you see it, the beginnings and beginning to unfold. Sure. And, and you're, you're right about kind of the, the heart of the book. And I'll let you know that the, it took us three, maybe four months to come to an agreement on the subtitle for this book between the mm. publisher and you know, my editor sales team, myself. And it, it, you're right. It's a book about white evangelical masculinity and militarism, but the sales team told us we couldn't use the words masculinity or militarism because they were too big. So, mm. so we had to get a little creative in terms of how to convey some of this through, through the title. It's a trade, it's a trade publisher, a trade book. And so we were up against some constraints. But yeah, the history that I tell, it really does come together in the 1940s and the 1950s. But in the book, I, I offer a quick glance back to earlier eras, really just to set the stage that things have not always looked like they, they are now, right? That's really important that things change over time. Conservative Protestantism changes over time. Ideas of masculinity change dramatically over time. And so conservative Protestant ideas of masculinity also change over time. So you can find some precursors to this kind of militant Christian masculinity in the 19th century, particularly if you look to the American South and look at this kind of white patriarchy that takes hold in this honor culture that involves, you know, kind of disciplining women, children, and enslaved populations. So there's definitely a precursor there. But in the 19th century, you also find uh, a Protestant vision of masculinity in Victorian Christianity that privileges self-restraint. So not mm. at all this kind of aggressive aggressive, rugged masculinity. You can trace changes and, and how that kind of falls out of fashion because of broader economic changes. Um, so that by the early 20th century, you have more of this kind of Teddy Roosevelt, rugged Christian manhood that takes hold. And that kind of unites Christians in the North and the South around a more militant conception of uh, masculinity. And you have the muscular Christianity that takes hold in American Protestantism. But even then it takes hold among liberal Protestants as much, if not more, than among conservative Protestants. In the First World War, you have many conservative Protestants who reject Christian nationalism and reject American militarism. And so, again, things look different in the past. And it's really in the 1940s when we see things come together that we'd recognize today, where conservative Protestants embrace Christian nationalism, embrace a defense of Christian America, and understand that as a military defense and understand that, you know, what they would call traditional gender roles are critical to this proper defense of the nation, mm -hmm. that you need to have strong men who are to be providers and critically protectors. And, and that that is their God-given role. And they, this, this emphasis of defining masculinity and femininity as opposites. And so men are given the role of protection and in the context, critical context by the late 40s of the early Cold War, that defense of Christian America must be a military defense. So we mm. need strong boys to grow up to be strong men who can use violence as necessary to protect faith, family, and nation. And that is this, this kind of ideology that conservative Protestants embrace in the 1940s and 50s as they reemerge on the public stage. So men like Billy Graham are leading this effort. The National Association of Evangelicals forms in 1942, and they really do successfully reassert themselves in terms of American culture and politics and these values of Christian nationalism and this kind of militant masculine protector are at the heart of that. Hmm. 
You know, you've been quoted, I'm not sure if this is a quote from the book or from an interview, but I did find this and I, I love what it says. And you state, there are millions of copies of books that have been sold within evangelical circles and what on what it means to be a Christian man. And when I started reading these books, what struck me was there were only a few Bible verses kind of sprinkled here and there, but when they were looking for models of Christian manhood, they really look to kind of secular heroes or mythical heroes, so warriors or soldiers or cowboys. Hence the, hence the name of your book, Jesus and John Wayne. As I said earlier, I grew up and even participated in this culture, both as a young man being taught and then as a husband to some degree. I no longer hold that view, thank goodness, but this is deeply ingrained in uh, a couple of generations. Unpack that for me a little bit. What What is the fascination? And I think you've kind of set the stage for that, but what is this fascination with evangelicals, specifically white evangelicals, on trying to define manhood and specifically masculinity, leadership, quote, being a strong uh, man being a warrior. We saw this in Promise Keepers. We saw this, we see it throughout. What What's that fascination? Yeah. So when I first read Eldridge's book and then, and then very quickly read, you know, dozens of other books on Christian manhood, I, I was immediately struck by the fact that, you know, evangelicals pride themselves in being Bible believing Christians, but the Bible verses were few and far between in many of these books and they are ripped out of context. And instead these authors were really looking to mythical heroes, often to secular heroes as models of Christian masculinity. So Eldridge's favorite was William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, but also he loved Teddy Roosevelt. He loved just, you know, cowboys and soldiers and General MacArthur. And when I looked at a lot of these other books, John Wayne just kept popping up too, in a way that first surprised me. I thought, you know, seriously, we're still talking about John Wayne. And, but as Eric Metaxas said, you know, John Wayne is the icon of American masculinity and by default, Christian masculinity as well. And, and, and this was curious to me because what I saw was, you know, Christians looking outside of scripture to secular models of masculinity. And when I thought about it, it really made sense because they were embracing this, this militancy and this masculine militarism. And the Bible doesn't uh, offer a lot to, to really develop that militancy, right? The model of Christ really works against that. And we have, you know, commandments to turn the other other cheek and to love your neighbors and to love your enemies. And we have the Beatitudes and we have the fruit of the spirit. And, you know, a lot of that doesn't really make for a really aggressive and ruthless kind of uh, warrior masculinity. And so they needed to look outside of uh, Christian tradition to find men who were not particularly shaped through Christian virtue. And John Wayne is a perfect example of that. And uh, so why, why were they doing this? Why did they feel compelled? compelled to, to kind of elevate this warrior masculinity and substitute that for a kind of Christian manhood. To, to, we have to kind of go back into history. So I already set up that, you know, the Cold mm -hmm. War context, it, they, they embraced these values. But then in the 1960s, things 
seem to be falling apart for conservative Americans, for conservative evangelicals, because these values that they held dear, Christian nationalism, gender traditionalism, right, suddenly seemed not to be held in common by many Americans. We had the civil rights movement disrupt the racial status quo in the American South in particular, where many evangelicals resided. You had the feminist movement challenging these traditional, you know, quote unquote, traditional gender roles. And then we had the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement questioning American goodness and American greatness. And a lot of Americans really started to rethink some of these values. But it's at that this moment in the 60s and in, into the 70s that evangelicals really doubled down on Christian nationalism and on American militarism and on gender traditionalism. So that this becomes a kind of oppositional identity for them over against the rest of American culture. And it, it they, they really embrace this kind of us versus them mentality. Mm. Um, so they're fighting the Cold War, but they're fighting the culture wars as well. And so we need warriors to do both. And, and this, this uh, militancy really does move to the center of their identity. And that militancy requires enemies, right? Like as Eldridge said in his book, God is a warrior God and men are made in his image. Every man has a battle to fight. And so if every man requires a battle to fight, to be, to follow Christ and to be in God's image, then you need enemies. You need mm. a constant supply of enemies in order to be an authentic man. And I think that's the pattern that I really saw emerge and evolve over time, this constant searching for enemies to sustain this militant identity rather than kind of militancy being the response of fear. I, I ended up kind of flipping that script and seeing that the militancy was at the core and that required leaders continually stoking fear in the hearts of their followers in order to sustain this militancy. Mm. That's fascinating. And again, from, as a historian, as you look at these things and as you laid them out, it's all, it's very clear. I want to jump ahead to an era that you're talking about, starting to get into the 60s, late 60s. You begin the rumblings of Jerry Falwell and even Bob Jones and some of these others that were Chris Wool that were starting to, to think about, well, if we're losing power overall as a country we've got to quote save this country we need to then the next the next thing would be to gain political power so that we can preserve this quote christian nation and so something happened during during that time period that i think changed everything and that was the development of a strategy and i'll let you talk about it specifically from a historical standpoint but what but the history shows it was a strategy to, to make a shift in political parties, the abortion issue, all of this led up to the early 80s being kind of a new day for Christian militarism, conservatism, the mingling of being a Republican and being a Christian, all of those things. So can you walk us through kind of the late 60s through the 70s? Sure, sure. I mean, uh, the figures that you mentioned there, so Chris Well, Bob Jones, and Jerry Falwell, we really need to talk about race here. Because while evangelicals will tell their story of their, their kind of political reawakening and political mobilization as one that really concerns family values, politics, and, and so you mentioned abortion, and they'll, they'll put abortion right at the center of that. But history shows that it was actually race that was at the heart of uh, white evangelical political mobilization in the 1960s. 
Wisconsin in the 1970s. And so before abortion became a partisan political issue, before the majority of conservative evangelicals were clearly, you know, kind of pro-life as they would define it today, that that was relatively late in the game. In the late 60s, Christianity Today has this whole special issue on abortion, you know, abortion right or wrong. And the answer is, it's really complicated, right? It's a really difficult moral issue. Well into the 1970s, the SBC was pro-choice in their politics. And again, it's a difficult moral issue. And there were an array of views. Pro-life politics, as we understand it today, anti-abortion was largely a Catholic issue. And many conservative Protestants back in the 60s and early 70s weren't too keen on Catholics. All right, that alliance was, was still in the making. And so we need to understand that race and the preservation of white supremacy frankly, was at the heart of evangelical political mobilization, the um, desire to defend segregation, to protect Christian schools and, and segregationist academies was at the heart of evangelical political mobilization before abortion moved to, to the center. And this aligns with what we see happening in, in the political parties where we see, you know, it's confusing. And I, I make this point in my book that Billy Graham was a lifelong registered Democrat, as were the vast majority of white evangelicals up until the 1980s, really. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really important point. And I'm sorry to interrupt you there, yeah. but I talked to so many people and I'm sure you do too. And they look, they scratch their head and they, it's almost like, I don't want to believe this because many, many Christians haven't even thought or done the research to understand that prior to about 1980, the early eighties, white evangelicals were Democrats and were supportive of abortion. As you said, the Southern Baptist convention issued statements in 1971, 1974, and in 1976, this was several few years after Roe v. Wade, in quotes, what they said about abortion was they that it should be allowed, it said for several reasons, for the obvious, they said rape, incest, but they also included a statement that said, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. In other words, for any reason. And then W.A. Criswell even, who was a Southern Baptist Convention president and one of the biggest fundamentalist pastors of First Baptist Dallas, he was quoted as saying when Roe v. Wade passed, I've always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from his mother that it became an individual person. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. Okay. That's shocking to many people because there's only there are only one reason that people vote anymore many times and we'll give a pass on so many things. It's called this candidate is anti-abortion, this candidate is pro-life. And we're not making a statement on this show whether either one of us is pro-life or pro-choice. That's not the point. I'll let you take it from there and say what yeah. the point is. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, this history does not dictate 
what anybody should believe about abortion today, but it helps us understand how people have come to their, their views on abortion and the significance that they have ascribed to this issue of abortion, that it, it was in many ways intentionally manufactured by political operatives to move abortion to the center as the moral value, the, the kind of reigning moral value by the late 1970s. In part, historians suggest because blatant racism was no longer socially acceptable, but there was still this effort to mobilize conservative voters. And what we can see is that views on race and views on gender have long gone hand in hand. And so when you're talking about family values politics, like I suggested, we have to talk about race. When we talk about, you know, authority and the authority of parents to make choices for their kids, which is what conservative evangelicals were all about in the 1970s. We have to ask which parents, which parents are they talking about? They're talking about white parents to make choices about the education of white children not the authority of black parents to make the same choices for their children. And, and so again, that family values and white racial identity were so closely intertwined. And the issue of abortion really rose to the level of prominence that it did during the 1970s because it came to be seen not as this difficult moral issue, but because it came to be situated within this broader set of evangelical identity issues, which was, again, the promotion of gender traditionalism, opposition to feminism, and increasingly, as abortion became to, came to be linked explicitly with feminism, that's when evangelicals came to oppose it. And so even today, while many evangelicals would insist that they're single issue voters, that abortion is really what motivates them, the survey data doesn't really bear that out. In fact, when you look at lists of priorities that that voters rank, abortion is way down on that list for Republican voters and for evangelical voters beneath things like economic policy and foreign policy. Now, anecdotally, this does not ring true to me because I hear the same things that you hear, you know, that abortion is the most important thing. But I do suspect that if you could wave a magic wand and take abortion just completely out of the realm of politics. I think we would see very little partisan shift on the part of the vast majority of evangelicals because abortion is just one piece of this larger puzzle and it fits together with these other pieces, but it's just one piece. And you take that out and the allegiances in terms of foreign policy, in terms of fiscal policy, in terms of you know issues like immigration and border control and all of these things are going to hold firm whether or not abortion is there as a linchpin. Yeah. Can you tell us who was Paul Weyrich and why was he such an important figure in the evangelical political conservatism movement? Yeah, he, he was one of these figures who really was active behind the scenes, behind the scenes in helping to kind of build the scaffolding of the religious right. And he was one who identified abortion as this, this issue that could help galvanize conservative evangelical voters that and conservative Christian voters generally, right? Catholics as well, was this issue that could unite both religious conservatives across different denominations and secular conservatives. And so he 
he was really behind the scenes building this, building this movement and, you know, working in tandem with men like Jerry Falwell and women like Phyllis Schlafly to define this really new set of political and cultural allegiances that then they promoted within their circles, within American Catholicism, within American evangelicalism to define a new kind of political orthodoxy and also essentially religious orthodoxy around these these conservative views, which included abortion, but were not limited to abortion, right? Abortion, Mm. also aggressive foreign policy, American militarism, right? Strengthening American power. It was also linked to law and order politics. Again, Mm. we need to bring race into this picture. Opposition uh, to civil rights was linked to economic issues. It was was this this complete package, but then it was packaged and sold uh, through religious networks by preachers and very intentionally so and very successfully. Did he have a hard time selling it? Did did people like Falwell and and Dobson and some of these others were they immediately on board or were they resistant to to supporting um, the anti-abortion platform? No, pretty. I mean, by the time at least that I started, you know, that, that I have records to to demonstrate, there wasn't resistance. There was certainly resistance among some evangelicals. I think it's worth pointing that out, right? That we always have this minority movement within evangelicalism, you know, from the the sixties on, the evangelical left, if you will, that we're pushing back against all of these kind of new allegiances in terms of gender traditionalism. So you had you know, evangelical feminists, you had evangelical pacifists, you had those you know, anti-war activists, you had the Sojourners movement and Jim Wallace, and, and you did have this minority position. And so, so you have diversity within evangelicalism, within white evangelicalism mm-hmm. throughout, but we have to understand the power dynamic as well. And so even though you can identify this minority position, it is the minority position. And and then we can focus on the moral majority as they claim, but really see that they did wield an enormous amount of power in within evangelicalism more broadly. And so with, with people like James Dobson and, and Jerry Falwell, certainly by the seventies, increasingly on board. Now, somebody like Falwell was interesting because, you know, a decade earlier, he had some real qualms about political activism and in this famous uh, sermon that he gave about marchers and preachers. And it, it's really jarring to look at it because we know that he was, you know, this leading activist in mobilizing evangelicals politically. But in that earlier context, he was actually talking about civil rights activists and ministers who were working in the civil rights movement. And he was against that kind of political activism. But by the late 70s, he was all on board for uh, Christian political activism, even to the point of of civil disobedience, if, for Mm. example, the Equal Rights Amendment were to be passed. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so now we're in the 80s. Jimmy Carter was in the 70s, and he was not the, he was disappointing to many white evangelicals, because even though he claimed to be one, he was a different type of evangelical. And everything that happened during his administration, along comes Ronald Reagan in the early 80s. What what did he represent to this moral majority, white national Christian? Yeah, the contrast between Carter and Reagan is really illuminating because, of course, 
Carter was a born again evangelical. You caught the national media's attention in 1976. You know, what does it mean to be a born again? You know, the media was all over this trying to figure out. And, you know, apparently it's a fairly common thing in Christianity. And, and so he was a Sunday school teacher, right? He was just exactly what many evangelicals thought the country needed in the wake of Watergate and that kind of disappointment. And he seemed this breath of fresh air. But of course he wasn't. He was this, he was deeply disappointing to evangelicals, both in terms of domestic policy, in his support for feminism, his support for the Equal Rights Amendment, but also in terms of foreign policy. He was seen to have presided over this real decline in American power in mm. terms of foreign policy. And, and of course, we're in a difficult economic time as well with the national recession. And so by the end of his presidency, certainly he seemed um, to be a failure. He seemed to be a, a failure in leadership. He seemed weak. And he really, to many conservative evangelicals who were building this movement, right, piecing together the, the religious right around these family values issues and foreign policy issues, he seemed to have betrayed their cause. Mm. And he, he was born again. Um, he was evangelical. And they thought he's one of us. And then they realized that how he applied his faith in uh, the realm of politics looked very different. When he was talking family values, he was talking a much more expansive understanding of what counted for family values. He was talking about national daycare. He was talking about a wide array of families, not just you know, kind of the traditional heterosexual two-parent family. He was open to all different kinds of families. How can the country support all of these families? And so in, in so many ways, he was seen as, as a betrayal of, of evangelicalism. Mm. And, and then along comes Ronald Reagan. And when, where Carter looks weak, he's too nice. He's too friendly. He doesn't have what it takes on the national stage. And, and then Ronald Reagan kind of sweeps in and he's fresh off his California ranch. He wears cowboy hats. He's seen riding horses and looks and like John Wayne. He looks like, and he's good friends with John Wayne, right? right? He's really good friends. And John Wayne is campaigning for him. And you know, one of the last things that John Wayne does before he dies and, and, and Reagan. So it's, it's the aura of Ronald Reagan. And then it's also his policies and his rhetoric. And he senses this, this difference. And, and he really plays up his own boldness, his own courage on the global stage. He is going to make America great again, really, right? He's going to bring America back and he's going to um, bring back the tough talk and he's going to lead America. And that's exactly what evangelicals wanted. Now, they expected a lot from Reagan as well. And they were disappointed by Reagan, particularly in terms of domestic policy. Many of their family values measures did, did not make any headway during the Reagan administration. But at least on foreign policy, they thought that he was on their side. He was on God's side. And, and so that really helped them kind of kept their loyalty throughout um, those eight years. But yes, Reagan was in both image and rhetoric, exactly what evangelicals were looking for. And so it didn't really matter what his religious faith was. It didn't really matter what his personal, you know, kind of family life or moral life looked like. He seems like the guy who was going to fight for what they believed in. And so they really gave him their loyalty. Yeah, exactly. And, and during that period, while people like Falwell, while people like Paul Weyrich, while everyone was t uh, looking at the, the political power and control that the White House afforded them and policies, et cetera, 
bringing that down to the personal level, to the family level, to the relational level, along comes a guy named James Dobson during that kind of period, late 70s, early 80s, and and just takes off in the in the evangelical world, specifically the white evangelical world, and begins to establish what we now look back and historically as family values politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, talk about James Dobson and his role, not only in uh, the political arena, which was huge, but also instilling a, a worldview, a construct of what the family should should be and how it should function. Yeah, you know, I, I put James Dobson right at the center of the history of the last half century of American evangelicalism. And it, it kind of surprises me that many historians treat him as, as kind of this, this sideshow at best, you know, almost a footnote. So they're looking at theologians and they're looking at seminaries and, you know, kind of tracing the history through other maybe more respectable establishment institutions. And when I look at the the last half century of American evangelicalism, I have to put Dobson right at the center, both in terms of politics and in terms of of religion, because he was so effective mobilizing evangelicals politically precisely because for a long time he didn't appear to be doing so, right? He was just talking about how to raise your kids. He was just talking about how to be a good husband, how, and, and he was very explicit about presenting himself in this light. He knew that the vast majority of his listeners. So in 1977, he, he, he forms right, focus on the family, this organization takes to the airwaves. And, and so very quickly he's, he's a presence in evangelical homes on a daily basis and evangelical women in particular who are at home are listening to him. And so he's, he's strategic about not, not appearing too political Again, he's just telling them how to raise their kids and he's providing free literature, right, to to help guide his listeners. And in doing so, he's establishing this multi-million dollar empire, really religious empire through radio, through publishing branch, and is becoming incredibly powerful, but appearing to be apolitical. But of course, by the 1970s, quote unquote, family values are enormously political and how he's defining the family as, you know, a traditional male breadwinner, provider, protector, as a woman, as the caregiver. And he is really insistent upon the stark gender difference at the heart of, of, of Christianity, really, and of the social order. So as he puts it, men and women are different in every cell of their bodies, right? Now, biologically, you, you, can, you can verify that. What he, what he then the meaning that he, he um, places on that is really quite extreme. And so he sketches out this really this basis of the whole social order. But then he, he takes a step. This isn't just right for, for Christians, how he believes God has designed marriage and home and family for Christians, but because he holds to this Christian nationalism that America is and ought to be a Christian nation, that means that these ideals of gender also have to be accepted by all Americans or have to be, you know, kind of coercively forced upon all Americans. And that's where politics comes in. And so, you know, any legislation about marriage or, you know, any, any legislative work on childcare or any of these things that seem to disrupt 
his vision of how a proper family should look heterosexual family with patriarchal authority and you know a woman really as caregiver he will work against and he will start to mobilize his listeners to work against. And so by the 80s, he's really shifting into this, defending homeschool and and working to mobilize by then his millions of listeners to become very active in the political sphere. And by the 1990s, he's really embraced this and he works so effectively and largely off the radar of people who aren't evangelicals, right? So a lot of people don't, you know, maybe, maybe you've heard of James Thompson, maybe haven't if you're not inside evangelical circles and they have no idea that he has direct access to millions, millions of voters, right? On a daily basis through his radio, through his direct mail, through church bulletins. And he's this enormously influential figure in, in really defining evangelicalism. And he continues to be up to this day. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, all of us, if not one time or another who are brought up in that, haven't read the one of his books or, or heard him on, on the radio. He always, he, he was, he was a great and continues to be, I assume, uh, a great interviewer and always had, always talked about some, from time to time, some really interesting topics. But as you said, what it evolved into was really a mobilization unit to say, you guys take care of the, the big leaders in the White House, I'll make sure I mobilize the individual citizen, the family, the Christians uh, in the pews, and we will make sure we get the votes for yeah. you. It seems to work hand in hand. Is that, am I saying that correctly? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think one of the more interesting things in my research for this book was understanding not just the role that Dobson played in terms of you know, promoting traditional family values politics, but also the, the uh, role that he played in promoting American militarism. Uh, mm -hmm. Within American evangelicalism, he worked in, 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 you know, hand in hand with the military to help kind of revitalize the image of the military in the post Vietnam era and to cast American um, military as as heroes once again. And he did this very explicitly. And he also worked to influence the military and the military ends up, you know, using his materials to promote family values within the military and to promote, you know, quote, unquote, healthy fatherhood and so on within the military. And this relationship has remained tight for decades now. And, and that was fascinating to me to see it, 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 it you know, domestic politics and foreign policy have always gone hand in hand within the religious right and within conservative evangelicalism. And that's one of the things I really tried to make visible in, in Jesus and John Wayne as well. Mm, mm. So you have Reagan and you have the, the kind of shift from evangelicals being primarily Democrat, not really caring about abortion, to all of a sudden they have their man eight years in, then they get another four years of Bush number one, communism falls, and in comes Bill Clinton for eight yeah. years. What what happened during that period of the 90s leading up to 2000? Who who rose up? What was the shift in strategy and, and what happened during that time period? Yeah, the 90s were my favorite period, uh, the most fascinating <laughs> for me in, in this whole narrative, right? Because so much seems up for grabs all of a sudden. The Cold War is done. And again, I can't emphasize how critical the Cold War context was for this kind of new evangelical identity that emerges, this conservative white evangelical identity from you know the 40s on uh, up to the 90s. 
And then all of a sudden the cold war is done and it, it ushers in a time of confusion. When I was reading the evangelical writings from the 1990s, that word appeared over and over again. It is so confusing. It is so confusing. Who are we? What do we do? What does it mean to be a man? It is so confusing. And so people um, stepped in to kind of sort through this confusion. In terms of politics, what that looked like was some genuine openness to reconsidering allegiances. The old culture wars categories seemed less relevant to many in the 1990s. There is an emphasis on looking to global issues, a genuine emphasis to look at issues like global poverty. Um, this is where we start to see emphasis on, on the persecution of the global church and what American Christians ought to be doing in that respect. We have more attention to global justice issues and anti-trafficking activism, things like that. And all of this is, is genuine. We continue to have, however, an undercurrent of a culture wars politics, and you continue to have activists uh, like Pat Buchanan and others who are really trying to shore up. Pat Robertson, shore up and kind of revitalize this, this culture wars to say, okay, the cold war might be ended, but there's a new war. It's a culture war. It's a war for the soul of America. But really, if you look at evangelicalism in the 1990s, it feels to me like it almost could have gone either way. And I, I really focus in on the promise keepers movement and the evangelical men's movement, right? Because they are directly responding to this great confusion, you know, on the political front and in terms of gender. And so there was a, a pretty widespread belief that the old kind of more militant model of Christian patriarchy was outmoded. It, its time had come and gone. So much had seemed to, to change. Feminism seemed here to stay. A lot of women, even conservative evangelical women, because of economic shifts, were in the workforce and they needed to be in the workforce. And so there seemed to be an openness to, okay, let's rethink some things. But they weren't willing to entirely let go of patriarchy. They weren't willing to let go of the the, the warrior motif entirely. And control. so they kind of, yeah, <laughs> control. They, they, they kind of struck a compromise and, and they elevated this idea of the, the tender warrior. We still need warriors and it's men's job, but, but they should be tender. They should be nice. We, we still need patriarchy, but let's have a soft patriarchy. Kind of, you know, like stand off some of those rough edges, make it more palatable to the 1990s man and woman. And, and so that's the promise keepers movement. Now, again, it, it's, it's a time of, of confusion. And, and when I looked back, you could find all sorts of models of masculinity and femininity and politics being offered, including straight up egalitarianism within the promise keepers movement within conservative evangelicalism. And that's where, you know, if you, if you don't know where things end up, you can go back in time and feel like, wow, things are really changing. This is a progressive you know, movement. Things are going to be different. But if you look more closely, what you see happening by the second half of the 1990s is the kind of backlash that the conservative forces are reasserting themselves. They do not like what they're seeing in terms of these progressive directions. They do not like Bill Clinton <laughs> at all. They do not approve of Clinton's foreign policy. They do not approve of Clinton's multinationalism and work with the UN. And they do not like Hillary Clinton at all. And so they're working to kind of um, shore things up within their own communities. And you see this pendulum kind of swinging back towards a harsher patriarchy, towards mm. a more traditional culture wars politics. So that by the end of the 1990s, you have a number of voices calling for a return to toughness, too much softness, too much emotion, too much tenderness. And so by 2001, that was really interesting to me. You have three books 
um, that are published in the opening months of 2001. One of those is Dobson's Bringing Up Boys, which is all about testosterone, right? And testosterone is the key to masculinity and do not squelch that for your little boys because we need little boys to grow up to be strong men, again, to protect faith, family, and nation. So teach them how to use guns and and toughen them up. You have Doug Wilson's Future Men, Wilson, a kind of conservative, reformed-ish outlier, but really harsh vision of patriarchal leadership. And again, how to raise your boys to become these harsh patriarchs. And you have Eldridge's Wild at Heart, right? Where every man has a battle to fight and a beauty to rescue. Mm. Now, all three of these books are on the shelves of Christian bookstores when terrorists attack the United States on September 11, 2001. And this message of every man has a battle to fight, it resonates with conservative evangelicals who all of a sudden, right, the confusion of the 1990s is gone. There's a new war, right? The Cold War categories are back, but now there's just a new enemy and that is radical Islam. And, mm. and you just, you take that old, that, that old uh, worldview and it fits perfectly with the new, new circumstances, at least within conservative evangelicalism. They're very clear. This is the new cold war. We just use the old categories and the same rules apply, but this, this resonates not just with conservative evangelicals in the post nine 11 era. It resonates with Americans generally. And that's when you see this massive popularity of these books on Christian manhood. So Eldridge's book goes on to sell more than 4 million copies, Uh, right? Dobson, more than a million copies. And somebody like Wilson kind of moves into the, the mainstream from the fringes. What he's saying resonates with mainstream evangelicals, even though what he's saying is really quite extreme in terms of racism, in terms of misogyny, in terms of militarism, all of that kind of shifts the mainstream itself. And that's really the era that we are still living in today. This where, you know, the question of what is mainstream and what is fringe was a question that I wrestled with throughout my research. It's a question that I was asking more than 15 years ago. And I think it's a question that many evangelicals are continuing to ask today. And and that's really one of the questions at the heart of, of my book. Something else that popped up during that time period, which I want you to just talk on just a little bit, is the the this whole purity culture that started in the mid late 90s and went on through to the early 2000s and i guess in some sectors still rages but that was that was instrumental on many fronts i personally believe it has it, it was was and is extremely destructive to women specifically but talk about that a little bit that promise keepers moving into the 2000s really came along part of that quote softer side of man is you know being there for your daughter dating your daughter letting teaching her what a man looks like making sure that that she remains pure so she can present herself to her her warrior leader man can you can you unpack that just a little bit as well Oh, I cringe even as you describe it, right? So what I, yes, purity culture is very much a part of this. It, it emerges really in the, in the 1990s and, and, and it's so much more than just um, kind of sexual restraint or sexual chastity or, or, you know, kind of traditional Christian sexual ethics. It's a very gendered ideal as, as your summary suggests, where the emphasis on sexual purity is disproportionately placed on, on girls. 
And which isn't to say they, they are suggesting that boys ought to be um, sexually promiscuous, but the way that they describe sexuality differs quite a bit if you're talking about men or women. And what I discovered is that the roots for this actually go way back. And so actually you, you could trace it back to the 19th century if you wanted the, the original sexual or, or sorry, social purity movement. This was Victorian era. They didn't um, call it sexual purity movement was actually a movement that Christian women started to push against Victorian ideals of sexuality mm. that placed a great emphasis on female purity and kind of let men off the hook because this kind of boys will be more boys mentality that was already happening in the 19th century and Christian women were pushing back against it. Then it, this, this reemerges that this almost kind of neo-Victorian sexuality in the cold war era again. And that's when we see, so I spent a lot of time reading Christian sex manuals from the 1960s and 1970s and, and all the way up. And, you know, the, the LaHaye's are a great example of this. And what I saw was really disturbing teachings about sexuality. So that, that, that presented that, that hinged on sexual difference. And so again, God created men and women completely different. And God filled men with testosterone and that gives them the power to lead, but that also makes them aggressive and it makes restraint very hard. And so men are naturally filled with lust and, and sexual desire. And it is very hard for men to restrain themselves. So that's where women come in and it is women's job never to tempt men. And so women who are not married have to be modest. They have to, because again, men, men are going to do what, what they're made to do. They're filled with testosterone. Restraint is not really their, their thing. So, so women who are not married have this great responsibility not to tempt men. And if a, a man ends up abusing a woman, you know, raping a woman, well, what did she do to, to tempt him is this disturbing pattern, but women who are married also have a really important role in this arrangement because women who are married it is their obligation to meet mm. all of their husband's many sexual desires. Right. And so again, if a, if a man commits sexual assault, it is his wife's fault because clearly she failed to meet his every sexual need. Mm. Now this sounds incredibly disturbing and it is, and it is that blatant in these, these teachings on sexuality. So women are married. Women have to be very sexy. They have to be very feminine. They have to be absolutely submissive socially, religiously, and sexually to their husbands meet his every need. And again, um, anything goes wrong. It is is the woman's fault. The victim will, will be blamed. Even if the victim is a young girl, what did she do to seduce, to tempt? And again, the wife is always responsible as well. This is a pattern that persists through the decades. The last chapter of my book is entirely a kind of expose of how these teachings on sex sexuality manifest in real lives and in real mm. in, in organizations and institutions and is absolutely devastating. So purity culture is just the next iteration of this. Let me add to that this rhetoric on sexuality, the teaching on sexuality in these sex manuals is explicitly linked to strangely foreign policy that the teachings are that a man's ego needs to be propped up. And that happens mostly in the bedroom, right? So come on wives, meet your husband's needs, build him up, stroke his ego so that he feels affirmed in his leadership capacity so that he can lead this nation, not just the family, but the nation, and he can defend the nation militarily. 
Mm. right? It's that explicit. Mm. And so again, bringing together these domestic issues with foreign policy, it's, it's not hard to do if you actually just pay attention to what evangelicals are saying. So when purity culture comes along, it's just the next iteration of this. By then it's, you know, it's, it's really, one of the things I do here is talk about the importance of evangelical popular culture, consumer culture, right? This popular literature. And so when you look at the evangelical popular literature of the 1990s, you look at like, popular Christian music. You look at Josh Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye and Rebecca St. James and so on, right? Purity culture is everywhere. If you were an evangelical in youth group in the 1990s, like this kind of was your gospel, right? This was right. it. This is Christianity for you. And so it really takes this outsized role and introduces these gender dynamics as Christianity. And these ideals of sexuality and, and you know, in all of their problematic guises, this is packaged and sold and taught as Orthodox Christianity. And if you depart on any of these points, right, you are outside the fold. You are against Christianity. And so it has had really a devastating effect on mm. so many Christians. I hear from, th- these are the letters I get, right? Christians who realized this vision of masculinity for men was not, it was not who they were. It's not who God made them to be. This vision of femininity also you know, submissive femininity was not who, who God made women to be. And many people either tried to live within these rules and failed, right? Marriages were ruined. In many cases, they realized that if this was Christianity, they had to walk away from Christianity and many did. And so really devastating stories of, of harm, of sexual harm, of abuse, and of people just deciding if this is Christianity, I want none of it. Yes. Yes. Which, <laughs> which leads us to the past four years, and I can't let you go. How are we doing on time? Do you have I'm a few fine. more minutes? I'm good. Okay, good. Well, I know we're running a little bit long, but I want to fast forward because you know, eight years of of George W. Bush, which you know we can talk a lot about that, and there's lots of things that happened, but maybe maybe you can can tie that into leading up to 2016. We go through the 2000s, we get into the Obama era. Of course, he was not popular at all with white evangelicals. And yet we see so many things that that happened under under his watch. But but lead us from, say, George Bush to Obama to what led to, to Trump. Who were the players? What was happening behind the scenes? in this masculine military white christian movement Mm -hmm. so for a a brief moment george w bush like absolutely just embodied this this warrior ideal right in the in the wake of 9 11 and he was Mm -hmm. an evangelical president he has he had a texas ranch he wore a cowboy hat and you know and very briefly he talked about you know leading the crusade against radical islam and so it was a perfect fit over the course of his presidency however he appeared less and less warrior like right things were not going well on the foreign policy front he didn't look so strong um and resilient and so a lot of evangelicals were kind of you know questioning their loyalty not just to bush but then also to the republican party by the end of his term particularly younger evangelicals and so along comes Barack Obama and many younger evangelicals thought that this was, well, many, some, <laughs> a small number of, but significant number of young evangelicals thought that this was, this was the direction that 
a Christian politics should take, you know, racial reconciliation, if you will, and a different, more progressive view of what it is to be a Christian in politics, because of course, Barack Obama was a Christian, but, and, and in 2008, in fact, there is a defection of a small number, but significant number of young evangelicals, especially who vote for Barack Obama. And this was deeply alarming to the old guard of the religious right to see that defection and to see them vote not just for a black man, but for Barack Hussein Obama. Because in the years after 2001, the same men who were promoting this militant masculinity were also promoting virulent Islamophobia. And they were doing so often. I have a chapter that shows how they did so based on these fraudulent, like total frauds, ex-Muslim terrorists who who were all the rage in the evangelical speaking circuit. Yeah, they made right? the cir- they made the circuits and all oh this, but it was totally untrue. Totally untrue and supported by the SBC, supported by Focus on the Family, CBN, right? They had they had their backers. They still do. They're still out there. And verifiably faked, fake. Totally. The, false. This is not just an opinion. Totally false. Yes, verifiably. So uh, yeah, you could you could check the chapter for some really wild stories there. And so so then Barack Obama, right? He is anathema to members of the old guard, right? James Dobson absolutely despises Barack Obama. I have some examples of, of his rhetoric in the book, right? Obama stands for everything that they, they are against in so many ways. In a lot of ways, he's the culmination of everything they hate. He, yeah. you know, he start, starts with segregation, like you said, in the 50s and yeah. 60s, right? So he's black. Not only that, but he had a father that apparently maybe was a Muslim and his middle name is Hussein. We don't know a lot about his father because I guess he died many years ago and was separated from him. And then all of a sudden, we he's president and he's a Democrat. So, so there's a lot of rage against Obama, right? And he's a Christian, right? And that's right. what's and, so and they refuse, And many refuse to even acknowledge that, correct? Absolutely. And... And but Obama could speak with such eloquence about his Christian faith, and he did so, and that really, really angered somebody like like Dobson. I mean, you can just see uh, he, he he seems to be seething, and and trying to counter Obama's influence on the younger generation. And so there is an intentional plan by folks like Dobson, Wayne Grudem, and others, right, to shore up evangelical partisan loyalty among the younger generation. And I mean, the birther movement is part of this. So not only do they not deny that, that President Obama is a Christian, right? The majority of white evangelicals did not believe he was a Christian. Um, You're thinking he's a Muslim or you just don't really know, right? (laughs) In terms of the survey data and denying that he's an American. And again, for, for Christian nationalists, those two are very closely linked. And so you have the birther movement supported by, by men like Franklin Graham and, and this, this idea that Obama is not a Christian supported by many conservative evangelicals. And it's very effective. Now, then you can also look to what's happening with, in terms of the Obama administration and evangelical values. And this is where we have enormously important, the sea change on LGBTQ rights, right? On gay marriage, and Obama kind of flip-flopping on that. And that makes evangelicals really concerned. They're aware of their demographic decline, right? This 
you know, end of white Christian America thesis that Robert Jones has written about, and they are becoming increasingly concerned about religious liberty, precisely because they are aware that they no longer hold the majority position on many of these cultural values. And so um, the LGBTQ issue particularly brings this to the fore. So if they've suddenly realized that they've lost the culture, they've lost the culture wars, their religious liberty becomes all the more important for, for, for them to main, maintain some sense of control, some sense of power, mm. or as they would understand it, integrity within their communities, mm. right? To live as they, as they see fit. All of which is to say, by the end of the Obama administration, evangelicals are very concerned. Evangelical leaders have been working for eight years to make evangelicals very concerned, right? That's important here to stoke the fears in the hearts of evangelicals that their way of faith and life will come to an end with another democratic administration. And then lo and behold, Hillary Clinton is the nominee. And, you know, if there is anybody who could possibly be worse than Barack Obama for this evangelical world, it would be Hillary Clinton. And, and so when 2016 comes around, evangelicals, are, are very afraid and they have been really taught to be afraid by their mm. leaders. This has reached a heightened pitch and they have been immersed in this literature mm. for decades of looking to a strong leader, a warrior who is going to lead the charge, who is going to protect Christianity. And that is exactly what Donald Trump said he would do. He did not look like a Christian, but that made him all the better for this particular role. Because like I said earlier, right, somebody like John Wayne, somebody like Donald Trump, they are the perfect leader for this kind of a critical moment because they have not been shaped by traditional Christian virtue, love, joy, peace, patience, self-restraint, like all these things, like, no, that's not who we need in this moment. We need, as they say it, an ultimate fighting champion who will be ruthless because that's what this time calls for. And that is um, really exactly the rhetoric we hear around evangelical support for Donald Trump in 2016. Mm. And then, of course, we know the last four years, four and a half years, and we see things culminated in January the 6th, as, as we talk about this timeline and we talk about what started as this idea in the 40s and 50s, it's almost like it culminates in like this bad thinking or this bad social experiment culminates on January 6th. Like it all led up to that. Am I taking that too far? Yes and no, because January 6th was such an astounding moment in so many ways, because we see, you know, violence being done against American democracy, against, against our, our, you know, the heart of our nation, really. And we see that violence being, if not condoned, at least not actively condemned by mm. a pretty large swath of Americans and a pretty large swath of American evangelicals. And, and by that, I mean, you know, I, I don't really count, well, I don't condone violence, but right. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The there's, there's a lot of justifications that, that follow that, but, and, and so it is a striking moment, but as a historian, I would also suggest 
that violence has been perpetrated through this ideology for a long time. If we look to foreign policy, if we look to our Great policies point. on the border, immigration, refugee status, uh, right? If we if we if we look a little bit more critically at domestic policies too. So so I I, I, I it is the culmination. It's a striking moment, but there is also ample historical precedent there. So so both and but yes, January sixth was this this um, crystallizing moment. And I watched that unfold as, as we all did, but I, I watched it with great interest, particularly, you know, the signs that demonstrators were holding and a lot of mm. Christian imagery there. I saw one man holding a, a sign um, that said Braveheart and had a picture of William Wallace, but with Trump's head on it, right? Mm. Yeah, that just firmly roots this event in this longer history that, that I'm talking about. The prayers that were offered, not just on the floor of the Senate, but the prayer offered by the Proud Boys on their way to the Capitol, if you listen to those words, it could have been a prayer offered in any evangelical church on any given Sunday. You know, the, the patches of the armor of God, this, this Christian militancy, militarism was just everywhere on that day. And that's what really um, concerns me because, yes, that was a fringe movement. The vast majority of Americans and American evangelicals were not storming the Capitol. But I'm always asking, you know, how does the mainstream connect to the fringe and looking for very clear denouncing of those actions. And that's what I saw very little of. And that continues to be a cause of concern for evangelicals who have been steeped in this militant us versus them ideology for generations now who continue to be shaped, spiritually formed by the, the this evangelical consumer culture, by Christian radio, by Christian publishing, to embrace this particular set of values, to neglect teachings like loving your neighbor, loving your enemies, and, and, and literature that really redefines who Jesus Christ is, right? Redefines Jesus into this warrior king who's going to charge off into battle, you know, wielding a bloody sword. To me, that really is what's at the heart of this. And, and that's what really concerns me, not just looking at January 6th, but really looking at, at the state of, of ordinary evangelicals and ordinary evangelical spirituality. Yeah, and that brings us to a great point to wind this down today is, I guess my last question is part historical, but part philosophical. So I don't wanna put you on the, on the spot, but if, if this ideology can in fact be undone, what does deconstructing that and reconstructing it look like in churches or religious organizations or perhaps our own lives? Yeah, that is a really hard question. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm a historian, so I, I speak with considerable confidence explaining what has happened. And then now I'm in the position of often being asked, what should we do? And I, I, I enter those conversations with some trepidation. You wrote the book. <laughs> I did, I did. So <laughs> I'll, I'll just give you my opinion. You know, I think one of the things, first of all, just how important history is, right? That history, mm. history opens this up because evangelicals have for so long controlled their own historical narratives, right? They haven't looked at the starker side. They have whitewashed their own history and have tended to focus on evangelical heroism. Evangelicals are always the good guys. Now, full disclosure, I had that impulse as well, right? I first thought maybe I shouldn't write this book. Is this responsible of me as a Christian to kind of air all this dirty laundry? But there was a lot that needed to be aired, right? And so that's a common impulse. But history, one of the things that history does so powerfully is it, it shows 
that things have not always been the way they are now. And that these ideals, these values are constructed. Many of them are manufactured in time. And we can see who is, who is doing this, who is creating these narratives. And time and again, my research revealed powerful evangelical men were manufacturing these narratives in order largely to consolidate their own power. And it's pretty plain. If you look at the history, you can see this play out in real time. So once you know that, that frees us to ask, is this where we want to be, right? Mm. Do these values align with biblical Christianity? Do these values align with the values of the New Testament Jesus? And we're in a much better space to have those conversations because otherwise these values, again, they've been packaged and sold as just plain Christianity. This is biblical values, right? But it's not. It's it, These are historically constructed ideals that have been sold as biblical values. And so that gives us space to rethink them. But what does that look like personally? You know, I've I've been hearing from so many people who are working to to really deconstruct. And most of them, when they use the word deconstruction, they're not saying abandon their entire faith. That's kind of just leaving, right? But deconstruct means to deconstruct what of their religious formation, personal formation was really this cultural baggage that got attached to Christianity. And can they peel that off? And then what does the Christianity look like that remains? That's the deconstruction process. Now on an individual level, I think that's going quite well for many people. I mean, it's, it's harsh. It's, there's a sense of loss, a sense of betrayal. I mean, I've had Mm. prominent evangelical pastors share with me, they are going through this and are really struggling with their own complicity in understanding that maybe 30, 35 years of their ministry has been propping this up. And now they realize what they've been doing. And it's this harsh, harsh realization. And so, you know, what do they do next? Well, if you're an evangelical leader, I think that might look different than if, if you're, if you don't have leadership positions. So when I talk with evangelical leaders, I have some, some words of advice, which is, you know, make amends. You Mm. did this, you, you did this. What does, what does that look like to undo this? Who have you harmed? And usually they, they have a list. Mm. They have a list of people that they have, you know, somebody like Rob Bell, they, you know, like, sorry, you know, farewell, Rob Bell, you're out. And then I say, don't just look to who you've excluded, who you've harmed that, that immediately comes to mind. Think about who you've never included, right? Mm. What, what boundaries have you drawn around the faith that, so that you have never you know, think about racial boundaries that you have never actually been attentive to prophetic Christianity from African-American tradition. You have never actually interacted much with people who look different than you with, with Christianities that are coming from different places. So maybe, you know, I think a lot of evangelical leaders want to know immediately, what do we do differently and how do I fix this? And I kind of push back against that on the one hand. Yes, please do. On the other hand, are you really the ones in a position right now to be fixing anything? And maybe what you need to be doing is leaving your spaces and listening to other voices because Christianity may well be flourishing right now, just not in your spaces. And maybe you need to go into those places where it is flourishing and listen for a time. On a personal level, I think in some ways that's easier because you can, it's, it's easier for you. Know, you can leave your church, not an easy thing ever actually, but you know, you can enter into different communities as an individual. And I see many people doing that right now and finding community in other spaces, life-giving community. What I also see, however, is on an institutional level, I see very little change. 
So I see individuals either as leaders or, or just as ordinary folks really engaging in this deconstruction. When I look to, in, to institutions, I still see a lot of conservatism, yes. by which I mean fear of change, fear of losing powerful donors, fear of angering constituents, fear of losing subscribers, because this evangelicalism that I, I've presented in Jesus and John Wayne, it's so thoroughly enmeshed with this consumer culture. And there is a, I always try to make visible in this book, every time money changes hands and there is a lot of money changing hands. There's a lot of money at stake. So there is a lot at stake in disrupting the status quo right now. And most institutions from what I've observed are not willing to take that risk. Mm. And so I see a lot of individual soul searching and individual deconstruction and healthy change. I see very little institutional change following that right now. So it leaves a lot of people feeling lost, a lot of people feeling homeless. Yes. Yes, I agree. I agree 100%. And that's... That's the hard thing, but I I have to believe that it also is a hopeful thing, that change and growth is the normal trajectory of all creation. And so I hope that's what we're seeing here. I want to thank you for your time. How can people learn more? We unpacked an hour and a half, which is longer than I normally go. We could probably go another hour and a half. But how do how do people, if they're curious, Dr. Kristen, how can they how can they learn more about your work, maybe upcoming books? And I know you have a book before this. Where do they find that? Sure. I'm I have a website, KristenDumay.com. So Dumay is actually spelled D-U-M-E-Z. On like Dumez. And so I put a lot of my writings there. You can follow my research. I'm also very active on Twitter, <laughs> way too active on Twitter. So that's where we connected. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I love that space. It's, it's, it's a great way to connect with ideas and, and with people and, and real relationships kind of build on that. So that's cool. So I'm at Twitter at KK Dumay. And I also have a Facebook author page for those listeners who are over on Facebook. And that's also at KK Dumay. And yeah, I, I post a lot of my writing there. I also have a new edition of the book coming out in June. And that's a paperback, which has a new preface, which brings us all the way up through 2020. So you can see if my thesis held up through 2020. I'm sure it did. And <laughs> what is what are you working on now? What's your next book? My next book is A Cultural History of White Christian Womanhood, covering roughly the same period, the last 75 years of American history. And I am having so much fun researching it. The title is Live, Laugh, Love. And so it looks at this kind of gendered religious culture, consumer culture in terms of neoliberalism, post-feminism and white supremacy. Mm. Well, I want to thank you again for, for taking the time. Love your work. We'll continue to, to push listeners toward anything new that you have. And maybe when the new book comes out, we can do it again. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, Kristen, talk to you soon. Take care.